Welcome, ladies, gentlemen, seafarers, mariners, and amphibians from beyond. You are listening to the Je Nicole pod series. The opinions presented in this series do not represent the official position of any government, organization, or entity. All right, welcome back to Je Nicole, everyone. Also, a very happy new year and welcome to 2022 to all our listeners. For all those tuning in for the first time, be sure to check out our previous eight episodes from 2021. To kick off the new year, today I'm joined by Professor Andrew Lambert, who's the Lawton Professor of Naval History and War Studies at the King's College London. Andrew has a distinguished career and has published a wide array of articles and books. And today we're here to discuss his latest book, The British Way of War, Julian Corbett and the Battle for a National Strategy. Welcome to the show, Andrew, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. It's a great pleasure. It's wonderful to hear that you had a new book out and um, was very lucky to get a nice hardcover copy to read in preparation for this interview. But just for some of our listeners who are embarking on their naval history journey, the name Juliet Corbett may be familiar to some, but for those uh, neophytes, not so much. So he was kind of famous due to his famous writings, which influenced the Royal Navy in the 19th to 20th century, as well as his history of the Royal Navy. But would you be able to provide us with a brief overview of his contribution uh, to naval history and the Royal Navy before we uh, dig down into the concepts within your book? Thank you, and, and with pleasure. Um, he's, of course, also the founding genius of the Royal Australian Navy because the Henderson mission, which came out to Australia in that transition period between the Commonwealth navies and the Royal Australian, all of those men had been taught by Corbett. He knew all of them. So there's a very strong sense that Jackie Fisher, the, the first sea lord, is sending out the people who understand what the Royal Navy is going to become and sees the Royal Australian Navy working seamlessly with that through shared doctrine, a shared history, uh, and, and shared concepts. So Julian Corbett was born in 1854. He was the son of an increasingly successful property developer in southwest London. Um, Large swathes of southwest London were built in the mid-late Victorian period and Corbett's father clearly had a hand in a lot of that. And the family during his childhood moved from being moderately well-to-do to to being remarkably rich. So by the time Corbett goes to university, he is extremely privileged. But that isn't old money, that's very much new money. He has a remarkable talent. He goes to school only briefly. He then moves on to Trinity College, Cambridge, where he secures a first-class degree in law. This is a new degree. It's a very practical program, but it's also at a very established and elite privileged institution. He practices as a lawyer. Uh, This is very much his father's idea of a suitable career. But he's also traveling on a global scale. He goes to India. He travels around India for several months with one of his brothers. Uh, He will go to North America with members of the Macmillan publishing dynasty. He has a marvelous range of of connections socially and politically. Unlike most people who write about war and strategy in this period, he never wears a uniform. 
He never belongs to any military service. And he's not a social conservative. He's a progressive liberal. Corbett sees the world moving forward, not holding back. And the contrast with his near contemporary, Alfred Thayer Mahan, is, is profound. One is uniformed, conservative, and somewhat regressive in some of his ideas. Corbett is in, in exactly the opposite direction. So Corbett's take on the British Empire isn't, isn't it good, let's keep it all. It's we need to follow that pattern we've already established with the dominions, with the Commonwealth, to create something which is not formal control, which is much more disaggregated. Um, he calls it the Sea Commonwealth, and his vision is, is not entirely unlike the Commonwealth we know today, connected by culture, connected by ideas, shared values, rather than political control. So this is somebody who is not in the classic mold of military thinkers. He's not military. He brings to it the sensibilities of an active local and national politician. Uh, he was three times offered the opportunity to sit in the House of Commons in England uh, for the Liberal Party. Fortunately for us, who think about war and history and policy, he, took, he turned down those opportunities, but continued to be an active Liberal for the rest of his life. And his Liberal politics are part of what shapes his particular identity. And they're also critical to his relationship with Admiral Lord Fisher, uh, the reforming first Sea Lord, 1904, 1910, and again 1914-15. Fisher and Corbett are very much on the same wavelength. Um, progressive, politically radical, uh, not socially conservative. And they're looking to improve and enhance the ability of Britain to secure the things that are vital among which maritime command is critical. Corbett didn't start out wanting to be a naval historian. He started out as a practicing lawyer. His interests were literary, artistic. He knew many of many significant authors of the period. He published four very successful Victorian novels, uh, all of which have either a maritime or a geographic central core to them. His books sold very well, but after publishing three or four novels, he decided to move on to write for the theatre. That didn't work quite so well. And through a family connection, he was invited to write A Short Life of Francis Drake. Uh, he picked the subject up and wrote a brilliant little book, some of which is just plain wrong, but it's, it's brilliant nonetheless. And that got him hooked on naval history. And from that point on, you can see he's moving into what is now an emerging field. Naval history doesn't exist when Corbett starts writing. It's just been shaped by Sir John Lawton, a King's College professor. Lawton recruits Corbett on the strength of this very good little book, and Corbett becomes a core member of the naval historical group that are working very closely with the Navy, its educational needs, but also linking in through Sir John Lawton into the academic basis of the new historical profession. So Corbett is entering naval history just as the Navy realizes it needs a lot of history, that it's got a history most of which is not actually particularly useful. So it's the past for the present in the professional education of naval officers. That's his core argument. He will never teach a university syndicate. He will teach serving officers in the Royal Navy that will be his in, his core audience. 
And the core audience for his texts, the things that we still consume on a regular basis, is naval officers, army officers, if they have the courage to read how strategy should actually be conducted by uh, senior British officers, and above all, the statesmen, many of whom he knows. Uh, leading into the First World War, Corbett knows pretty much everybody in the Liberal government, and he knows key ministers very well indeed. Uh, he's part of the same social groups. He's part of the coefficients dining club. He's a member of the party. So he has access. He is able to pro to progress the ideas of British strategy through direct conversation. His great book of 1907, which is in many ways uh, kind of pivotal output, England in the Seven Years' War, is essentially a guide to how Britain functions as a strategic great power and all you have to do is cross out references to France and ships of the line and write in Germany and dreadnoughts. And there's the British war plan for 1914. So Corbett is using history as analogy. He's using it to develop ideas and he's using it to get people to think about their job. His object in writing history is not just to understand history better, but that understanding is the basis of thinking about the future. So if you understand how the Seven Years' War works, you're more likely to be thinking clearly about how the next major war would have to work. So the, the past is critical. And it's that interaction between the past as an academically rigorous debate and the present as a discussion about strategy and policy going forward, which is Corbett's key point. He's right in the middle of that, and he is making sure that history is taken seriously by the Navy, and he's making sure that historians understand that what he is doing for the Navy is as valid as what they're doing in the academic classroom. And I note that some contemporary commentators have uh, at worst scorned or sometimes limited Corbett's role, including inaccurate assertions about his strategic vision and thinking of Sherman here in particular. In your book, you set the record straight. Would you be able to highlight some key misjudgments about Corbett? And was that partially or primarily a motivation for you to write the book? Right. Thank you. Yes, Corbett has, I think, been much traduced in the period since his death 100 years ago, and often by those who sought to, to be more positive about him. They, they simply misunderstood him. So to begin with, the first two people to seriously attack Corbett's reputation were Winston Churchill and David Beatty, both of whom had been shown up as having failed catastrophically in their duties in the early stages of the First World War, or in Beatty's case at the Battle of Jutland. Both of them fought lengthy battles to try and prevent Corbett publishing his official history of the First World War, and after his death in 1922, referred to him derisively and dismissively uh, and damaged his reputation going forward. So, by the early 1920s, the main criticism of Corbett was that he was wrong because Beatty and Churchill were right. Well, Beatty and Churchill were wrong, and they were wrong because they were serving their own reputations rather than uh, tending to what had actually happened. So he was not afraid to pick fights with people in high places. Corbett never had to kowtow to anybody because he was independently wealthy uh, on a scale that most of us couldn't imagine. He didn't have to do that job. He could have just thrown the towel in and given up, but he doesn't. He fights those battles and he wins them. 
He's far smarter than his opponents. Uh, he outwits both of these men because he wrote the contract for the publication of the official history. So whenever they said, we're going to ban this book, he said, well, actually, this commercial publishing house has a contract and we must deliver this book. Otherwise, they will take the government to court. Uh, that's the advantage of having a smart lawyer on your team. So then Corbett's reputation falls into abeyance and we find in the Second World War and afterwards this idea that what Corbett is talking about is, is somehow some golden age before reality hit and Britain had to fight different kinds of war. It's quite clear that in 1914 Britain had choices. It didn't choose to exercise those. It just wandered into the First World War, uh, largely at the behest of Churchill, who was the, the most dynamic contributor to the idea that the British army should fight in the middle of France. And after the Second World War, with the establishment of NATO, with the Cold War, with a British army stationed in Germany and the prospect of facing another war, it seemed that what Corbett was talking about, a global maritime strategy, simply wasn't relevant. Um, Britain was going to be fighting somewhere in the middle of Germany, or what we used to call West Germany, uh, against the Soviet Union. And both of those things have disappeared. They were short-term aberrations. They were not long-term truths. So in the 1960s, Michael Howard criticised Corbett's ideas, but he never actually engaged with them. Michael Howard managed to denigrate Corbett without reading his books, which I think is a slightly odd way of doing business. It's, um, yeah, one of my colleagues has told me that Sir Michael confessed that he never properly understood uh, Corbett uh, and quite clearly never read him either. So a lot of people are denigrating Corbett and among them is his first biographer, a very great historian, Donald Sherman, who taught at the Canadian uh, Royal Military College in Kingston and at Queen's University, Kingston. Don Sherman was educated in Britain. He's an imperial historian. And his tutor was a man called Brian Tunstall, who many years after Corbett's death had married his daughter and became his posthumous and unknown son-in-law. Tunstall had a fairly rotten time as a naval educator and left naval education fairly early on in his career. And that seems to have warped his judgment of Corbett's experience. And he managed to persuade uh, Sherman that Corbett had had a terrible time uh, teaching the Navy, that the Navy didn't listen, nobody wanted to hear what he was saying. And he managed to pull in a few quotes from the officer who always sits in the back of the room and isn't paying attention uh, in these classes. And that then became the, the prevailing narrative that poor little Corbett had had a terrible time trying to teach these dumb naval officers how to think. There is ample evidence that this is nonsense, but that's the version that persisted and it dovetailed perfectly with the Michael Howard continental commitment argument. So Corbett was both wrong and irrelevant and people at the time had known this. That is the basis on which I started this book. That simply doesn't work. You know, the idea that somebody who was writing all of Jackie Fisher's position papers uh, was completely uh, irrelevant and had nothing to add to the debate simply doesn't work. And because people were looking for the negatives, they missed the positives. Um, once you get into Corbett's diaries and you start to work out who he's talking to, where he's going, and the things that he's achieving, you realize that he's actually shaping the development of modern military education. In 1913, the International Congress of Historical Sciences, which is the world's leading group of academic historians, meets in London. 
And Corbett, using a combination of skill and influence, makes sure that for the first time, the International Congress has a panel dealing with naval and military history. Mm. It's never been on the agenda before. So the world's leading historians are in London. This is the biggest history meeting that's ever been held in London. And Corbett ensures that there's a series of meetings held at the Royal United Services Institute, literally 100 yards from the Admiralty Building and the War Office, where naval and military historians put forward papers that link academic scholarship with service education. Corbett organises all of the naval... No small feat. No small feat. Corbett organises all of the naval papers and then publishes them the following year. And that is the first ever textbook of naval history as part of naval education. And the chair of those meetings was, in most cases, the first sea lord, Prince Louis of Battenberg. He walked across the road to chair panels lectured to by eminent naval historians. He was a close personal friend of Julian Corbett and Sir John Lawton, who he taught as a midshipman. So this is getting the Navy and history together, right in the heart of Imperial London, right in the heart of the, the academic world of the university specialization of history. This is Corbett's work and his ability to organize, to promote, to develop, to edit, to publish. And why is he doing this? Because he believes in what he's doing. This is a mission. This isn't a job. If it had been a job, he, could, he would have just put it down again. And he will work himself to death. He died in 1922 uh, of a combination of multiple uh, illnesses, but also of his complete inability to stop working. He literally finished his account of the Battle of Jutland and the page proofs of that the day before he died. Wow. That's dedication. And that's what you call a life's work, isn't it, really? Yes. I guess this explains to us a bit about Corbett and his influence. But specifically, what did he actually propose for Britain strategically? I know that in your book you, you mentioned a few things, like the limited maritime method to use economic pressure that was tailored to Britain rather than mimicking a strategy focusing on continental states with mass conscription uh, focused on a specific geographic area. But would you be able to unpack that a little bit, please? Yeah. So what Corbett is, is doing, and this is why he's one of the great strategic thinkers, is he's taken the concepts that Clausewitz advances in, in On War and he's read them through the British evidence. So Clausewitz is a great book. Uh, if you're a Prussian general in the late 1820s thinking about having to deal with the French invading again, or possibly the Austrians, or maybe the Russians. It's not big on maritime. He mentions you might need to put some soldiers on the coast if you have one, but that's about it. What Corbett does is to take Clausewitz and to read him through the British evidence. And it, some principles of maritime strategy is a Clausewitzian structure being used to explain and develop British evidence. His argument really is very simple. Britain is not a continental military power. It's not big enough to be a continentally sized military power. It has global economic, uh, political and strategic commitments. And therefore, its strategy has to be maritime and global. It, it's not a choice. It's a, an absolute necessity. And we see that in the world wars of the 20th century. It's the maritime contribution that is Britain's unique uh, SP uh, in the winning of those wars. It, it's not continental mass. Uh, that comes from other places, probably so. 
So Corbett's argument is that we need to understand how Britain has evolved as a maritime strategic operator from the Tudor period through to the 20th century. We need to understand how that works. And we need to understand what that means going forward in terms of how we organise and run conflicts. So British wars are not going to be short. They're not going to be fought with massive standing armies. They're going to begin with pretty small professional long service armies and a very large navy. And unless you are planning to fight a completely different war, you need to maximise those assets at the outbreak of war. So your primary strategic instrument is going to be maritime control as the basis of economic warfare. So in all Britain's major wars, the decisive blow is, is actually economic rather than military. In his great book about Trafalgar, Corbett points out that the British won the Battle of Trafalgar, but it took them another 10 years to defeat Napoleon. Um, that's how long economic warfare might take in some contexts. So it's getting people to understand that winning battles is not important. As long as you don't lose those battles, you retain command of the sea, you continue to operate a, an aggressive maritime economic strategy. That your peacetime policy has to be focused around maintaining those critical maritime belligerent rights. The great battles that the British have with the French, the Russians, the Americans, and later the Germans over war at sea, they're not naval battles, they're legal battles. And this is where Corbett's skill sets come in. He's able to deal with the legal arguments that are being advanced on both sides. Britain has to preserve the ability to use economic warfare against its opponents. If it once gives up that ability, it will lose any war that it fights with anybody because it won't be able to use the blockade. And he will spend quite a lot of the First World War writing high-grade propaganda and cabinet memoranda on that point. He will be the key figure contributing to the British delegation at the Versailles Conference, which upholds Britain's maritime belligerent rights against the wishes of the Americans, who try to, to have them abrogated. So Corbett understands that you need to know what the basis of your strategy is. You need to know what the legal basis is. And that for Britain, that is going to be the key contribution. So maintain command of the sea and use that command of the sea aggressively against an enemy. And make sure that you have the military and naval resources to secure the critical strategic points. So if you look at the Napoleonic Wars, which Corbett does on several occasions, the Battle of Trafalgar is set up by the dispatch of 10,000 British troops to occupy the island of Sicily. Napoleon hears of this and decides that he should send troops to forestall the British and seize the island of Sicily instead, because that would cut the British out of the central Mediterranean and would greatly weaken their economic war effort. So he sends his fleet to sea to carry some troops to Sicily, and the direct result of that is the Battle of Trafalgar. So Trafalgar is not set up by the British wanting a battle. It's set up by Napoleon wanting to forestall uh, the imposition of ever more effective British blockades. So the blockade is, is critical, and the ability of the fleet to conduct that is based on legal arguments. And here Corbett's contribution is to make sure the contemporary Royal Navy of the 1900s understands that navies are not about fighting battles. They're about winning wars, and wars are not won by winning battles. 
seems like it would have been very divergent point of view uh, or arguments at the time. And I think in the second chapter of your book, uh, you highlight, and I quote, that Corbett would develop intellectually coherent arguments by sustained application to the singular problem of recovering and codifying British strategy. But he also played um, a role in popularising some of the ideas held by the Admiralty. Can you talk to us about how he was so effective at this? So Corbett's first introduction to Jackie Fisher uh, comes around 1902 when he starts teaching the Royal Navy's war course. Uh, he's hired as a historian who knows something about the past. Uh, the Navy is trying out quite a few historians to see if any of them can actually come up with something which is worth listening to. And Corbett clearly comes out of that process. He goes to see Fisher, who is then the second Sea Lord in charge of personnel. And this is when Fisher is reforming initial officer entry into the Royal Navy, uh, building the new college at Dartmouth and changing the regulations on how young officers get in. Fisher wants to liberalise the system. He wants to recruit from a much wider talent base than the previous system. And he wants to prevent the sense of ingrained privilege, which has crept into the Navy very much from the army. Uh, the early Edwardian Navy is much more aristocratic than the Navy that Nelson served in. And Fisher points this out. We're taking our new officers from far too narrow a, a pool of talent Corbett writes the journal articles which promote that system. And he's working with one of Fisher's young naval um, staffers who's called Herbert Richmond. Richmond will go on to be Corbett's main intellectual legatee after his death, but he's also the son of Corbett's best friend, uh, William Blake Richmond, great classical artist. So for Corbett, this is personal, it's intellectual, and that engagement encourages Fisher to see Corbett as the person who is able to explain what he is doing in the public arena in ways that will be understood not by naval officers, but by politicians, taxpayers, and the people who are actually having to support these programs. So Corbett's ability to communicate with the, the educated public is critical. He's not publishing these pieces in naval officer journals. He's publishing them in major quarterly, monthly, weekly reviews in newspapers. He's the one who's taking the naval message out to the engaged and intelligent public. And that's something that Fisher values greatly. He will defend initial officer training reforms. He will defend the dreadnought policy. He will defend the overall policy of the government. And he will produce an amazingly effective paper on maritime belligerent rights just in time uh, for the new Hague Conference, which is going to be debating those issues and laying out what Britain needs to secure at the conference. So it's that ability is priceless, the ability to understand the big arguments, to develop them in ways that will be accessible to a wider public audience. Fisher values him greatly, and throughout the rest of Fisher's life, when he's got something really important to say, he is in correspondence with Corbett about it. Corbett's diary is endlessly full of uh, conversations with Fisher, latterly on the telephone. Um, Fisher will ring him up and say, look, I need to get this done. Can you come over? Can we discuss this? So Fisher's big challenging papers, even during the First World War, Corbett is editing them, developing them and, and, re and refining them to make them more impactful. I think when I think of Jackie Fisher, I also think of a very 
parallel and similar dogged determination. Um, I think in my office, actually, one of my favourite quotes, and I have it on my office desk, is uh, a Jackie Fisher quote, um, the one that says, if you are a gunnery man, you must believe and teach that the world is saved by gunnery and will only be saved by gunnery. If you are a torpedo man, you must lecture and teach the same thing about torpedoes, but be in earnest, terribly in earnest. The man who doubts or is half-hearted never does anything for himself or his country. And he talks about the fanaticism of missionaries. And that passion just seems to be very much paralleled in Julian Corbett. They seem like quite the dynamic duo. Yeah. I think the the interesting thing, of course, is that their their personalities are strikingly different. Mm. Corbett is very reserved, very calm. You don't find Corbett giving vent to any expression. Uh, everything is very tightly buttoned up. It's the opposite almost with Jackie. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Fisher is, is explosive and, and Corbett is unbelievably restrained. And the cost of that is he, he, he does have more than one nervous breakdown at, at critical moments in his life. He's, he's keeping everything under control and just occasionally explodes uh, and he is completely knocked sideways by it. So he's desperately trying not to be passionate. Uh, you, you don't get a sense of, of a man who allows his emotions to get the better of him until it becomes catastrophic. Uh, and then it's you know, he's completely knocked out. And Corbett, uh, I think you mentioned earlier, started teaching at the Royal Naval War Course in 1902. Can you tell us why this was a critical point in his career? Corbett had served as a barrister in the 1880s. Uh, he'd run the family estate in the 1890s. He'd travelled, he'd written, he'd, he'd done a lot of things, but he didn't have a standing commitment. He didn't have something that gave his his life a, a central focus, and I think he desperately needed that. And he needed something where he could use his skills, which were literary, which were intellectual, which were legal, and his engagement. He quite clearly loves the Royal Navy. For the rest of his life, he is completely taken up with this. This becomes his mission. And I think without that, there's no telling what he would have done. I think he would have just run out of inspiration. So this is the thing that just tweaks his his attention and it's it switches on what will be this astonishing career. So why does he work with the, with the Royal Navy's war course? Because he's teaching the Navy's best and brightest junior and mid-career and senior officers he gets to meet everybody in the navy all the officers who matter in the first world war he knows them all he knows them all personally uh, he's either taught them he's been teaching in, in uh, institutions that they've commanded or in the case of john jellico they went to the 300th anniversary of quebec together on a battleship um, so he'd known jellico for many many years they remained friends right to the end um, of Corbett's life. Indeed, Jellicoe's great report on the on the defence of the empire just after the First World War is entirely based on volume one of Corbett's naval operations, uh, which Jellicoe insisted on taking with him before he, he left on that mission. So he has access to this rich strain of naval officers, and it's quite clear that he can tell the difference between the smart and positive ones and, and the less intelligent uh, he doesn't have a great deal of um, conversation with Lord Charles Beresford. Um, and there are several others that he recognises their inadequacies. 
and his history of the First World War would be very much about making sure people understand what went wrong without necessarily pointing too severely at individuals. And for the for the naysayers and the uninformed, what would be your argument for why Julian Corbett still has relevance to navalists today? Corbett is critical because unlike so many people who write about strategy defence, he's not writing with a uniform on. He's not writing with a particular ideology. He doesn't have a tribal loyalty. He didn't go to a military or naval academy. This is a mature, sophisticated intellectual um, with a strong educational background and a very clear sense of the culture in which he operates. Um, Corbett's influences are not just historians and other writers. Leading opinion formers of the late Victorian and Edwardian era are also part of his, his mental world. So he, he's reading how Britain needs to think strategically. He's not advocating the Navy because he likes the Navy. He's advocating it because it's the answer to the problem, that Britain needs a strategy, which is not naval but maritime, that all aspects of defence have to pivot around maintaining command of the sea as a primary strategic system, both for security and uh, for the prosecution of conflict. And that has to shape the way Britain prepares its defence forces. Because it's an insular global power, it needs to be mobile. It needs deployable troops to secure and hold maritime positions. And the lessons of history are that that's exactly what Britain has always done. The Great British Wars are about securing those maritime access points, either to use them or or to deny them to the enemy. And the, the more Corbett goes through the past, the more the patterns emerge. So when he compiles some principles of maritime strategy, uh, which is the textbook and the one Corbett book people are likely to, most likely to have accessed. This is meant to be national strategic doctrine circa 1911. It is not a teaching text for the Navy. It's a teaching text for everybody who thinks about British defence. And the problem is that there are those in other organisations who think that it would be best not to go down that road and that to be a professional army you need to do what all the other armies do which is to have a lot of conscript soldiers uh, and fight very large battles somewhere in the middle of Europe and the British had never done this there was no rationale for them thinking about doing it down to 1914 either Uh, that was not Britain's interest and therefore it was not necessary to secure it the security of France in 1914 is very safely in the hands of the French The British do not defend France in 1914. The French do that. Um, They were more than capable of doing it, um, as as events uh, demonstrated. So what Britain needed was an army and a navy which could work together uh, and a leadership which understood how to conduct war and how strategy worked. And the problem in 1914 was that too many people in the navy thought about the war at sea and forgot the rest of the war. Far too many people in the army thought that not being connected with the Navy was a positive. And the, the political leadership of the country, with the exception of the enthusiastic cavalry subaltern Winston Churchill, was woefully ignorant of the realities of national strategy. Even those that had read Corbett's books were still incapable of reaching rational decisions. So this is a tra- 
So the tragedy is of a prophet not listened to in his own time, and then afterwards, in many cases, traduced by those who should have listened uh, in order to excuse their failure to do so. So if I've given him a chance to be heard, if I've given him a chance to be heard in his proper context uh, and to give expression to his own arguments, then I think that, you know, that that's a useful way of, of starting a defense debate in the 21st century. How do we think about security? How do we position individual states' contributions to what are increasingly alliance systems? And how should we prioritize uh, the way that we think about defense. What are the critical aspects? Are they hard forces at the front line? Are they different kinds of, of assets? You know, and when we're talking to our allies, um, how do we prioritize the things that matter to us without challenging the integrity of the alliance? Yeah. I, I mean, when I read the, your book, it was immediately apparent how Corbett's uh, arguments and his works are still relevant today. And for all our listeners, I've placed the link um, below. So I highly recommend you purchase the book. It is a really good read. And uh, Andrew does a great job of combining all of those, I guess, dynamic ideas to be accessible for the everyday reader, which is a fantastic job. Thank you for sharing those parts about your books, Andrew. And now we're just going to move into The Sailors 3. So most of our guests are familiar with what this is. Uh, in the Army, we have the Soldiers 5 brief, which is a short, succinct briefing style. But we like to do a bit of a maritime spin on that, a little bit fun and also intellectually relevant, and we call it the Sailors 3. So each guest that comes on our show gets a chance to answer one of three questions. Actually, they have to answer all three. Uh, and in the last one, they have to pick a wild card. So we're going to step through it now. Soldiers 5 out, Sailors 3 in. Andrew, are you ready? For the first question. I'm ready. Okay. So thinking in back to back in history, what was your favorite or most remarkable in-service military platform? Can be current, can be in the past, and just tell us why you think it was remarkable. Uh, for me, it's the pioneer ironclad capital ship, HMS Warrior, um, a ship which transformed all aspects of naval warfare. Every ship before it was made of wood and... Every ship after it that mattered would be made of, of iron and steel. Um, it had pr protection, it had high speed, and it, it had the aesthetics of the past, but the, the structures of the future. Um, a very deceptive package. It almost looks like it belongs in the age of Nelson, uh, but it's quite clear it doesn't. And I had the great privilege of, of working on the project to restore the ship uh, back in the 1980s. I wrote the history of the, the restoration and, and of the ship. Uh, so I've had a, a very long engagement with this ship. And everybody who's been in Portsmouth Harbour will know that as you steam up the harbour, there is this great ship. These days, slightly overshadowed by the Queen Elizabeth and the Prince of Wales, but only slightly. It's a demonstration of what maritime states have to do. They have to keep and maintain an advantage. And Warrior met a French challenge and, and basically overpowered it with size, with capability, and with technology, uh, and enabled the British to win an arms race. And that's something which we're constantly being referred to. Um, the British won many arms races with pretty much everybody who tried to challenge them in building warships because it was essential for the British and it was not essential for their rivals. 
right down to the outbreak know, of the First World War. Germany is, is building a large fleet, but the British win that arms race because they have to. And that shapes the way the nation thinks about technology, the way it thinks about industrial base. What are the really critical things? What do you really have to do as a state in order to secure your, your vital interests? And for the British, for four or 500 years, it was build cutting-edge warships. Yeah, I was recently at Portsmouth and saw Warrior. And while it was also wonderful to see the two carriers, I think Warrior is just so impressive. Okay, our second question is, what is the most interesting emerging technology in your view? It can be at any stage of development, so it doesn't actually have to be realised in, in the near future. I think the, the thing that's engaging me at the moment is the possibility that the current generation of large deck carriers will be operating largely drone-based flying squadrons. Um, we know the Americans have a, have a fully functioning drone aircraft which can f operate in a very conventional way from their large deck carriers. It's not going to be long before really dangerous strike missions will be carried out by pilotless aircraft. Uh, we'll probably use piloted fighter aircraft for defensive missions and those that require some human discretion. But for when we're sending planes into harm's way, we will not be sending the pilots with them. The pilots will be off board. And once you take the pilot out, you halve the size of the platform and you can seriously increase the number of, of assets. We know that on the new American carriers of the Ford class, they've already built in half hangar deck stops on the lifts so they can pack two planes one on top of the other so taking the pilot out of that equation and putting them in a different space is going to be transformational in terms of offensive warfare less so for defensive warfare but certainly it will transform the ability of navies to project power from the sea in much the same way we saw in the build-up to the second world war in 1930 carriers aren't carrying many planes and they're not dropping many bombs by the mid-1940s, they're doing both of those things in very large numbers. So there's a possibility of a major technology shift there, which would transform the balance at sea. And make a very large number of fighter pilots potentially feel a little sad. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm sure there are plenty of, um, of airlines that are still going to need a few pilots. So, um, <laughs> yeah. All right. Our, our third question is the wild card, so you can choose one of the following options. You can make a prediction for the future of military operations or technology. You can recommend a book that all emerging maritime leaders should read, apart from the current book you've just published, of course, and uh, a tip for emerging maritime leaders. So would you like to pick a prediction, book, or tip? I think a prediction. Yeah, shoot. Going, I think going forward, we get, we're looking and we have a crisis brewing in, uh, in, in Eastern Europe, in, in the Ukraine, where the Russians are massing troops on the border. This, the conflict here is, is not yet kinetic, but it's a, contact of, it's a conflict of ideas. What the Russians want is to regain control of a defensive area around what is currently Russia in much the same way that they've been doing since Peter the Great. Um, the Soviet Union is, is a massive defensive bastion around Russia, and the Warsaw Pact was a massive defensive bastion around the Soviet Union. So the Russians see the world in territorial distance and depth, and they're deeply concerned that the, the subversive West is challenging that. 
So what is the future? The future is that the regimes that want to control and, and limit will face increasing challenges through new kinds of access. And of course, global warming is going to challenge some of those bastion areas that the Soviets and the Russians held on to. The Northern Ocean route along the Siberian coast will become international waters at some stage in the next 20, 25 years. So we're looking at major struggles over international law of the sea. And we need to make sure that we've got all of our ducks lined up, ready to deal with that, that we've got the quality of, of intellectual horsepower that we need to wage those battles in the courtroom and to establish you know, the legal high ground in this. So I think going forward, that's going to be a massive area. Things are changing and we need to have the, the equipment to meet those changes because other regimes will certainly throw lots of resource at this. And if we want to defend our values, there will be you know, some cost in that and that is going to involve uh, the legal as well as the military and the strategic. Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, thank you very much for joining us on the show, Andrew. And um, I think it's been very informative. Our listeners are going to really enjoy your insights that you've offered. And another plug for your book, highly recommend. I couldn't put it down. I actually probably read it about four days and considering I work full time, that was quite a feat indeed. Uh, so thanks for coming on the show and we hope to get you on again in the future. Yeah, I look forward to it. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to Jean Nicole Pod. Stay in contact with us via Jean Nicole underscore pod on Twitter or www.jeanicole.com. <laughs>